Have you ever loved someone so much that you followed them around and talked endlessly about them to all your friends and family? That's how much we love rhododendron, a quirky and amazing genus of flowering plants with a deep human history and an incredible ecological legacy. Follow along on our adventures as we learn about the remarkable things that folks all around the world have done for the love of rhododendron. Episode 6, The Pitch of Their Wing Beats. In today's episode, we meet Dr. Robbie Hart, a researcher at the William L. Brown Center of the Missouri Botanical Garden. We learn how hillsides filled with rhododendron flowers have informed the everyday lives of people on Mount Yulong in South China. How this traditional ecological knowledge is preserved in the local languages of Yunnan, and how even listening to a tiny bee buzzing around a flower can provide insight on the importance of plants and the environment for the flourishing of humankind. Echoing the words of author Nancy Farmer, look around you, feel the wind, smell the air, listen to the birds, and watch the sky. Tell me what's happening in the wide world. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode six of For the Love of Rhododendron. It's been a while since you've heard my voice on the podcast, but that's the nature of it, really, with uh, the diversity of interests in, in the genus Rhododendron. Our content creators are lucky to be able to draw from a fairly large pool of candidate speakers, uh, which I think leads to a pretty fun experience for you as our listeners. Uh, that brings me to today's podcast interviewee, it's Dr. Robbie Hart. Uh, he's a research scientist at the Missouri Botanical Garden in St. Louis, Missouri, where he is director of the Brown Center, wherein a team of researchers are interested in the study of useful plants, the interaction of humans, plants, and their environment, plant conservation, and the preservation of traditional knowledge for the benefit of future generations. So welcome, Robbie. Thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, so I, I know it's been a while since you and I interacted. I think maybe three years when you came to do a talk at the Field right. Museum here in Chicago, right? That's right. So that was an awesome talk. Um, and it actually came at a pretty pivotal moment for me in my PhD, because I was still, you know, as, as people learned about me in episode two, like rhododendron wasn't really my first choice for a dissertation project. I just kind of fell into it by the nature of my advisor. And, and so when you came to give that talk, it was you know, I was like, oh, this is really cool. I want to, I think I want to go here and do some of this stuff too. And I ended up traveling to the exact mountain range where you did some of your collections and, and walked in the same trails and stuff. So that's pretty cool. Maybe we'll talk about that more, but can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your research interests and, and maybe a little bit about how you got into rhododendrons? Sure. And, and thanks, Ryan. Um, well, I, I took a pretty strange path into natural sciences. Um, uh, my my training, um, my graduate training, really was as an an ecologist, but my undergraduate training was as a linguist. And um, I studied linguistics at Swarthmore College. And um, after I graduated, I did some work with a professor named David Harrison, who was interested in small, what are sometimes called endangered languages, um, which tend to be uh, place-based, situated in a certain environment, and which often encode 
unique observations about that natural environment and um, have, have systems whereby those observations are transmitted from person to person um, and across generations, right? They're stored in stories, songs, names of things, um, and in ecological calendars, observations about what happens at different times of uh, the year and how those interact. And um, so I, I was able to help this sort of a dream, a dream job after my undergraduate graduation. I was able to help David put together a book called When Languages Die that sort of made the case for what sorts of information, observations, and perspectives are lost when one of these languages dies, or in fact, what happens is when its speakers um, make the decision to shift to speaking a um, lingua franca, such as English or Chinese or German. And one of the chapters was about this thing, which I just mentioned, these ecological calendars. And that was something that was really particularly interesting to me. And that was work that sort of drove my um, graduate study in, in ecology from, from the start. So I, I came to, to a program in biology and ecology from that perspective. And so when I was uh, looking around for, okay, what project am I going to do? Um, so I was um, part of a uh, NSF cohort funded by um, an NSF IGERT grant, which was um, they're very interesting grants, interdisciplinary sets of trainees that were working on a common theme, but from very different disciplinary perspectives. Um, so the common theme of this was biodiversity and livelihoods in Southwest China. And I knew that the perspective I was coming from was that of, of an ecologist, at least I was training myself to be an ecologist. And, um, and the question of what, you know, what questions to ask and what species to work on arose. And I sort of came back to this idea of these traditional ecological calendars. And I was working with my graduate supervisor, Dr. Jan Salek on, okay, if if I want to approach this question from a perspective of ecology and from the specific location of Southwest China, um, which is Yunnan province specifically, what's, what are the species to work on? And she said, well, number one would be rhododendrons because they have these, you know, if anything is going to be noticed by people, it's the blooming of rhododendrons with these incredible uh, salient, beautiful, large, colorful blooms that really kind of light up the hillsides and in sequence too, with one species after another coming into bloom and being really prominent on the mountainside. And in fact, in uh, a long sequence that they're some of the earliest flowers to bloom in this area and, and also some of the latest through the wintertime. And in addition, I was approaching this problem from a, an herbarium, a natural history collection, and rhododendrons happen to be one of the genera that's most widely represented in, in herbaria uh, by the preserved plant collections there. So it was something where I had lots of material with which to sort of address this question from a um, natural history collections perspective. Um, I had this wonderful elevational gradient of rhododendrons growing at different elevations, um, which uh, was inspiring from an ecological perspective. And then I had this, this inspiration that it could be something that 
local and indigenous people would notice and value and have observations about and perhaps incorporate into ecological calendars. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I didn't catch exactly why Yunnan province specifically. In fact, um, so I, uh, I knew that I wanted to continue to work in, in the Himalayas. I had uh, studied abroad there in um, uh, Nepal and done some field work in Eastern Nepal in my undergraduate um, uh, when I was still being a linguist and gotten really interested in these, these themes of traditional ecological knowledge and environmental knowledge stored in indigenous languages when I was there. So I had a, a sort of a strange search for graduate programs that I was looking at programs in environmental studies and forestry and environmental science and biology and anthropology. Um, but I knew that I would wanted to focus on some sort of interaction of uh, plants and people and that I wanted to continue to work in the Himalaya. And so this this IGERT program was was specifically based in in Northwest Yunnan. So all the students were coming together, whether they were limnologists or social scientists or uh, biologists like me, um, they were coming together to work on biodiversity and livelihoods um, in this area. Okay, that's cool. That's really neat. One of the reasons that I had you in mind for this podcast is that, as you mentioned, you've spent intimate time in the Himalayan region studying rhododendrons and you gave you painted a pretty nice picture of you know what the hillsides look like with roadies and you're very spot on from my experiences but <laughs> you, as you know like this is the center of diversity for rhododendrons um, I think in one of your papers you mentioned there's like over 300 species of rhododendron just in this area of the world which is insane but you know you also have the insight of as you said you're you were previously a linguist you know I guess a lot of your interests probably still continue to be in ling linguistics but you also work at one of the world's most prestigious botanical gardens, which is it's pretty cool. And then I, I think your research is super interesting. And I think you definitely give a great example of multidimensionality um, in your research, uh, which is pretty special. So can you give us an idea of what you've been up to recently? I know COVID and stuff has probably limited world travel for you, but just prior to COVID or Maybe even during COVID. Of course, and and thanks for saying that, Ryan. I, I really I think that multidimensionality is something I I really strive for and prize. And um, you know, I, I I think one can often feel like it it makes one an expert in nothing, but it it sure makes life interesting <laughs> too. Um, so you know, one of my ongoing um, projects has been also stemming from that work uh, I did mentored by uh, Jan in the Himalayas, um, but a, a slightly different project of hers that works a little bit higher up from the rhododendron transect that I was running. So this would be areas um, near the, the tops of those mountains that you also visited above the tree line in the alpine zone where um, we joined a global network called uh, Gloria, which adopts a shared methodology to um, do some pretty basic but intensive surveys of plant presence and abundance in small plots on alpine summits. And there are now Gloria plots on essentially every, every major mountain region in the world. There are more than a hundred of them. And uh, we survey these, we install temperature loggers, and then we revisit, revisit them in five to 10 years to see what's changed. And um, now that we're getting into the um, second and third resurveys in some areas, it's really a way to get direct insights into the impacts of climate change on 
mountain plants in some of the most remote areas in the world, um, and also areas that are um, uniquely climate controlled. And so one might imagine sensitive to climate change in a distinct and different way than other areas. And for our Himalayan sites, some of the areas that are among the most, uh, well, rich with species and, and rich with uh, particularly endemic species. So th that's something that uh, I continue to do um, in that area of Yunnan, um, but also we have collaborators and plots in um, Bhutan, uh, a little further west, and then in Nepal, even further west. So keeping that research going, um, working with this wonderful group of collaborators within each of these countries and the students and local people that are part of that project is um, always a, a, a pleasure. It's an immense amount of data to, to work through and analyze. Yeah, I imagine um, so. <laughs> and, and we also try to um, work with local people to take, particularly from our perspective within our sub-network of Gloria, to, to look at the ethnobotany of the areas. So not just how the plants are changing, but how the plant use traditions and how the useful plants there are being affected by climate change. So we can add that human dimension to it as well. Um, unfortunately, with, with COVID, you know, we had planned to, we were supposed to be doing work in 2020 in um, a site in Nepal and a site in Bhutan. Actually, the, the last two sites that we haven't yet resurveyed in our Himalayan sub-network. We were very excited about finishing this grand transect. Um, but we had to postpone that in 2020. And again, in 2021, we, we really hope that we're able to revisit those sites in uh, 2022. But the nice thing about long-term work is that um, it only gains value the longer you wait in a way, right? We're able to get even more of a uh, long-term perspective on the change that really matches the scale of climate change itself. But I'm also really interested in these multi-dimensional perspectives. Working as a part of the Brown Center lets me take a broader look at economic botany and ethnobotany and all these interactions of plants and people. One thing that is just fresh in my mind, because it's something I've been thinking about today, is looking at the immense amount of information on plant uses, but also local vernacular and you know what's called common names for plants um, in many languages that are stored on the uh, the labels on the specimens in our herbaria. So here at Missouri, we have about seven and a half million specimens, and um, you know you you've seen these. You work at a, a natural history collection yourself, Ryan, but many people might not have. You know these are dried, preserved plants on sheets of paper. And they're, they're commonly used to, you know, the reason they're collected really is to define species. The reason that these uh, historical plant collectors in Southwest China um, collected so many rhododendrons was this, this quest for new species um, to name. And of course, to discover and use as, as material for hybridization. But once these specimens are collected, they survive and they can be used in different ways. So they can be used for um, to understand things about when the species flower, what their spatial range is, their diseases, of course, their genetics now, right? Mm -hmm. That no one had any idea when they were collecting them, they'd be able to get genetic material from them. But also ethnobotanical information. Um, so we've been doing some work with um, our collections here and um, going through the specimens that have been digitized and looking at the ones that have ethno-linguistic and ethnobotanical information on them 
and finding hundreds of thousands of sheets um, in which the botanical collector recorded this information. Tens of thousands of species that have information on their use as medicine or as food or as construction material, and also information on, on what these plants were called. And so what we're trying to do is then make this information available and link it to the specimens themselves. And this is exciting because these have been used before, you know, some of this material has been, you know, published and worked up in various publications, but it's not connected to the individual specimen. And that means when a species concept changes or the species determination changes, that information isn't, isn't really updated because it no longer has this knowledge production link of the idea that X species is used for this use or is called this in uh, this certain language um, to the original source that is the specimen collection. So anyway, I, I could go on and on about this, but it's it's still very much in progress and we're really excited about it. And especially for me, because as you said, it really leverages my training as a linguist, my collaborations with linguists and, and my place here at a natural history collection. Right, yeah, I bet that's really cool to kind of dive in. Yeah. And with, especially with your specific training and knowledge of the background, um, do you find any patterns to like certain collectors having more of this information than others? and especially in regards to rhododendron? Absolutely, yeah. And that, of course, speaks to the fact that, you know, none of these specimens are collected at random, right? It's not, it's not uh, or almost never, sort of regular ecological sampling, mm -hmm. right? That people have certain interests. And the ones who, um, you know, sometimes the, the people uh, who recorded ethnobotanical information, like, for instance, Walter Lewis here is one of the uh, um, collectors who, recorded an immense amount of ethnobotanical information. We're explicitly going out to get that as part of ethnobotanical studies that were you know, published in books and whatnot um, and, and are out there and part of the conversation. But I think it, there's still a lot of value to daylighting that information and connecting it with all, all the other sources because there are all sorts of reasons that information ends up on these, on these labels. Um, I will say one thing is that people who just in general, who are verbose about anything in their collection information mm -hmm. tend to also include ethnobotanical information. So when we were looking for these, um, often when we do a search for, for a label that has been digitized, often when we do a search and find something that was a false positive, like um, we searched for words like according to, which often indicates that, you know, someone had asked a local person about something. And of course, you often get a lot of false positives. There's something that's, you know, according to so-and-so, this flower is in June, which is interesting, but not ethnobotanical. But in those verbose labels, you'd also get ethnobotanical information quite a lot. Things that our text search hadn't found, but we happened to be looking at it and see it because um, it was just someone, a, a field scientist recording, recording information in the field, which to me says that there's a lot there to find. You just have to be, you know, looking hard and writing down everything you hear. What are the most interesting uses of rhododendron that you found in your studies of, of these herbarium specimens or even in, in your own research work? Right. So um, I, I thought it was really interesting. So as part of my, my dissertation work, um, I did a lot of interviews about the, the uses of rhododendrons. And one of, the, um, one of the things that surprised me is that people would often 
start with disclaimers about rhododendrons. They say, it's just not a particularly useful species. Um, you know, it's not a super high value medicine. It's not a super high value food. There are a lot of things you could ask us about. Rhododendrons are very pretty, but why are you asking about it basically? But when I'd probe, people would be able to talk for a, quite a while about these various different uses. So they included the sorts of things that I was specifically looking for about seasonality. Rhododendron as a seasonal indicator that the flowering of certain species was integrated into ecological calendars and indicated, for instance, um, the correct time to uh, harvest buckwheat or the correct time to plant potatoes. Also, uh, some occasional uses of rhododendron as food with edible flowers in particular, uh, some occasional uses of rhododendron as, as medicine for people or medicine for animals, um, again, by species. One of the more interesting things uh, I found was, as mentioned, of rhododendron honey. So rhododendrons are very commonly visited by um, honeybees in, in this area, both Apis mellifera, the European honeybee, and Apis serrana, the, the native Asian honeybee. In other areas in the Himalaya, also um, Apis dorsata, which is the, the huge, you know, famous, uh, um, you know, Himalayan cliff honeybee. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, those are pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. But the, the honey from rhododendrons has these gryanotoxins that give it um, sort of this famously uh, toxic effect. And, um, and, and also presumably in different doses, medicinal effect or, or effects you might, you might want or be looking for in certain cases. But um, I had one informant tell me that he could tell when the honeybees had been visiting a particular type of rhododendron flower with granitoxins in it, you know, that might, that might affect the quality of the honey because the pitch of their wing beats would change. Wow. Um, because they were being affected by the granitoxins as well. Um, <laughs> which I just, I just thought was, was really fascinating. Um, you know, I, I would have loved to do an entire dissertation just on that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> which, which didn't, didn't end up happening, but, um, but I think it's a really, it's a really richly uh, interesting human insect plant multi-species interaction. And it, it raises for me the question of, you know, as, as climate changes and the timing of when different rhododendrons come into flower changes and the elevations at which they come into flower changes, could that possibly have downstream impacts on honey toxicity? That, yeah, that's a good, that's a valid question for sure. In your, in your research targeting changes in flowering time, particularly, what was the most extreme case that you've 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 documented at least with with rhododendrons and maybe even other you know species from your field sites by large um we saw species moving sort of moderately in response to to changes in temperature of the preceding year so we saw by and large in the on the slopes of Yulong where uh, i was doing my ecological field work but it was also borne out in the herbarium data that many of the rhododendrons were responding with a pretty similarly and, and moderate response to uh, warming, um, often in response of flowering earlier in response to warming of the previous year, which was counterbalanced by a delay after years with particularly warm winters. 
However, um, certain species did did respond differently. So um, some species would respond and seemed either non-responsive or respond in opposite directions, like Rhododendron uninense, which has a slightly different morphology and um, and seems to occupy a sort of different phenological response space. This has also been borne out by some observations they've done at uh, the Royal Botanic Garden in Edinburgh of that species. Hmm. But, but in answer to your question, the most dramatic response we saw was from uh, Rhododendron lepidotum, which is one species that seemed to show these really big year-to-year -year shifts in, in its flowering time and in a way that we think could be attributed to uh, changes in, in weather. And which raises the question of if different species because of their physiology or, or for other reasons are responding to different cues in terms of their phenology, can perhaps even fairly small changes in those cues uh, drive some big changes in the flowering overlap between species or the general sort of temporal look and sequence of, of flowering across an entire year or across an elevational gradient. Uh, and just to, uh, just to clarify this for listeners, like why is flowering time important? Both in like, in terms of the rhododendrons existing themselves. I, I, I know you've alluded already to like ecological calendars and stuff, mm -hmm. you know, for humans using it as like when to plant stuff. And that's what, right. that's really cool. You know, now we can probably use phones and et cetera, unless you live in some of these villages, maybe they're still, are they still using flowering time as, as a time to, to plant things? Or is that kind of given way to, you know, man, man-made technology? Well, what's interesting about ecological calendars, and I, I, I do remember that you had a second or a first question there too. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> what's, what's interesting about ecological calendars, right, is that um, in some in some ways, they can tell you more about what you actually want to know about than the calendar day of the year that you get from your, your phone, right? Because if, if the things that are giving you your month are, are things like when a certain flower flowers, and that's based on temperature and precipitation, that might actually indicate some more important things to the goal you want. Um, whatever that goal is, you know, if it's planting or if it's knowing to wait for a certain run of fish up a river or something, then then would simply the solar day of the year, right? In some cases, but to your to your point, when species come into flower is yeah, it's not just important to um, to local people or to um, horticulturalists and people who plant rhododendrons, but it's also very important in the natural communities of, of these organisms. One reason, of course, is the reason they come into flower at all, which is for reproduction. And so if rhododendrons are flowering at a time when a pollinator is not present, that could disrupt their reproduction. If their flowering time and space is beginning to overlap more uh, with another rhododendron species flowering time and space, uh, that could lead to new hybrids and hybridization zones, which is, of course, something that rhododendrons do quite promiscuously. If that overlap is extreme or is shared with species even more distant, it could lead to competition for pollination surface if there are not enough pollinators around or if the flowering time is sort of coming into alignment with something that's uh, a much more attractive floral reward for the pollinator species. 
You can also think about this from the perspective of the, of the pollinators, right? Rhododendrons flower in this area, sort of in sequence across the entire year. They're some of the earliest and highest plants to come into flower. And that means they're also providing this provisioning for the pollinators across the season and in gaps when other plants aren't flowering. So it's at least a potential impact also upon the pollinator species if this, uh, if this sequence is disrupted. Not a necessary impact, but a potential impact. That's really, really, really interesting and very, very complex. Yes. <laughs> Super yeah. complex. <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess one of the one of the ways to sort of simplify the complexity that I see, which applies both to ecological calendars and to um, like, you know, multi-species interactions, is that things get weird with climate change. So someone someone called it, I forget who called it, you know, instead of global warming, we should be talking about global weirding. Um, <laughs> and that's always what when I do interviews with people they report about ecological calendars. They say things are falling, you know, are coming into the calendar when they shouldn't be. We don't know how to predict this from this anymore. And that also seems, you know, there is evidence from a whole lot of different ecological studies in different systems, different uh, parts of the world about these uh, multi-species interactions being disrupted. Of course, the formation of new multi-species interactions is something we notice as mosquitoes vectoring diseases formerly found only further south move up into northern areas and mm -hmm. we, and we humans have to deal with those you know that's that's a new multi-species interaction being formed <laughs> yeah that's an, i really like the term ecological calendar like to to think of in terms of like a especially like United States culture and all of us have our cell phones and stuff and we, we live and die by the, the calendar and stuff like that, you know, inside of buildings or whatever. They're really out of touch with a lot of that stuff that goes on just outside of our, our doorstep. Just being a bird watcher, for example, being so in tune with the migration is really, really interesting for me. And to, to look at things like bird casting where they use weather satellites to predict how many millions of birds are going to be flying through a certain area at night is... wow. You know, that kind of stuff is, I can see, you know, we don't often get to see the secret lives of plants and how this, this happens, but, you know, as you just alluded to the importance of how all of that is connected all the way up to, you know, even like birds migrating through at certain times for fruiting or flowering, if you're a nectivore, I think absolutely like that are, can highly be highly impacted or these birds that are using rhododendron forests in the places that you're, or even the insects, et cetera, that are not only using the flowers, but the plants themselves for shelter would all be affected, right? Right, right, ab ab absolutely. And I think you make a really good point too, Ryan, that ecological calendars, even if we don't name them that, are, are really important at a sort of psychological and spiritual level for people. And they're hard to build. They take a lot of time in a place and observations about a place, which I think also means that they kind of draw people together in these networks, as you say. You'll talk to other people or be on your cell phone with other people and they'll say, hey, I just saw this bird over in this place. You know, it's back again. We saw the first, you know, the first robin of spring or something. I don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're looking at, at more, more exciting migratory birds than that. <laughs> but, um, and I think that really, you know, it holds a, uh, an important place in, in people's heads. And I think also that's um, that's something that we see reflected in the uh, herbarium record as well. You know, it, it affects botanists too. Really? That, How so? Well, here at least in, in Missouri, if you go into the herbarium, there are some great data sets, well, both in herbarium collections, 
but also in um, ecological data sets. You'll often find really rich information on spring flowering, early spring flowering, right? The first things peaking up in the spring, because they're just so salient. You, you, those are things you really want to be recording. And there's actually this fall off in quality uh, information when you get to kind of like midsummer. Tons of plants are around. It's hot. <laughs> Maybe you're sort of sick of all these plants, um, but those those first spring flowers are something that tend to be very psychologically weighty for people. I know they are for me, and it's funny that you say that because there's there's kind of a lull in in like species reports for birds in particular in Chicago, just mm -hmm. because nothing stays here, <laughs> everything migrates <laughs> through. So summertime is like, yeah, birding is not so much fun. It's just, it's funny, kind of an undercurrent of whispers in the, in the summertime birding community. I'm going to divert a little bit back to your PhD research and some of your other research in Yunnan. Specific, you had a really interesting paper that came out in 2018 where you had done interviews with a couple of indigenous groups of people in Yunnan. I guess one had been there longer than, than I guess, a one that had moved from Sichuan province to the mountains um, mm -hmm. of, of Yunnan where you were where you were doing your studies. Can you give us like a, a, a rough like elevator speech of, of what that was? Because I, I find it super interesting and in particular the, the focal species for this was rhododendrons. So that's why I ask. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean I've I've already alluded to some of the results we had about the the uses of rhododendron species and the usefulness of them and sort of the way they're sometimes presented. But, you know, this was really the component of that research project where I, I was sort of looking for that ecological calendar that had motivated me to, to be there in the first place. But I also wanted to keep an open mind to, to other knowledge about this specific set of species. Um, so the same species I was encountering in my ecological transects. And, and just find out what people knew about them and how, how they thought about them and, and beyond just ecological calendars and beyond just plant uses, but incorporating that too. So I, I asked about the uses of each species. I asked about the, um, the names of each of the, the species. Also, I tried to do a methodology that let people see. So I had these kind of laminated photographs of the of each species from a few different angles with a little size comparison. Um, and, you know, no, nothing's perfect. You can't walk out with every interviewee and actually point at the plant um, because they grow at different elevations along the mountain and they flower at different times. But I think people generally sort of understood what each was. So the first thing I did actually was ask people just to sort of group together the things that are most similar. And so botanical taxonomists, break up natural, you know, individuals and populations and lineages into, into species and genera. And, um, you know, people do the same thing, you know, we do the same thing using uh, um, sort of our cultural conceptions of what, what gets lumped together and what gets split. And then we assign words to it, common names to it in English. So um, I was sort of trying to get at people's sense of that as well. So how they um, lumped or split these different rhododendrons growing out in the world into what you might call like ethnospecies and um, ethnogenera, um, and then the names they used for them too. So I was asking about the common names in uh, these two languages. So one was uh, Nashi. I was working with the um, Nashi people who are very local to the area in a way that, you know, they're very much associated with it. They think of 
this area, Yulong Mountain and the surrounds Lijiang City as really kind of like integral to the Nashi culture, the sort of Nashi origin myth and their sort of sense of what makes them culturally special. And, and then also with Yi people who, as you mentioned, had migrated more recently within the last few generations or, or fewer in some cases from uh, Sichuan. Um, so a place that's environmentally very similar, but a, a bit distant and with a different set of rhododendron species in Sichuan. And I was kind of trying to get, you know, in addition to just getting information about rhododendrons, about how people had a sense of them responding to climate or not, about the uses for them, I, I was also trying to ask this question of, you know, how people generate or conserve ethnobotanical information. And um, one of the things that really interested me was the, the knowledge sets were really, were really comparable. And, um, you know, they, they were both they were both rich, both Yi and Nashi people. And they were both pretty similar. So in both Yi and Nashi, there were, you know, lots of species had common names. There were several layers of ethnotaxonomy. So names uh, in both Nashi and Yi for different species, but also subspecies varieties and these higher order genera. So in, in Nashi, there was a word that translated as rhododendron. In, in Yi, it's split into two, what you might think of as two different genera, right? So, which is kind of equivalent to in English, right? We have some things we call rhododendrons, some things we call azaleas. Uh, right, so there, yeah, this isn't something that, that only sort of people in remote areas do. We, we all do it too. And, and there was also a similar amount of uh, detail information when I would ask people about what elevations things grew at, what times they flowered, and what changes they had seen in elevation and flowering time in response to climate change. So this was really interesting for, for me. And to me, it said that people, the Yi people in particular, had sort of come from this area where they had sort of a similar set of rhododendrons that they were categorizing into this set of common names. They flowered at different times, different places on the mountain, and could kind of come with that framework and slot the local species into it in, in Yunnan. But there was also this importance that I saw of kind of, I guess you could call it memory or conservatism as well. So mentions of species that had been there before and couldn't be found anymore or the, the function of culture to sort of preserve observations, you know, that are not just the exact way the world exists now, but are kind of baselines of how it existed in the past. So for instance, you know, one of these species that was in Yi called um, buckwheat rhododendron, uh, Shoma Gichi, uh, because it flowered at the right time to harvest buckwheat, they said wasn't working anymore. It's one of these ecological calendar indicators I had mentioned. So that's, that's a way that these systems are, are not all sort of static traditional knowledge, but in that there is some lag, they can preserve this sort of memory or, or sense of how things were in the past. You mentioned that there was a, was there was a rhododendron called buckwheat rhododendron. So mm -hmm. you said that was, and now it's no longer a good indicator. Not for buckwheat. Actually, somebody said that it, uh, it matches better with potatoes now. So, um, so again, uh, you know, you can still, I guess in in one little example there, you have both this sort of disruption, but also rebuilding of a different ecological calendar at the same time. Right. Yeah. And I noticed, I remember there was one figure in the paper that kind of struck me where you had taken the the drawings of mm. the different types of rhododendron, or yeah, I think there was even one that was really cool that was like a sacred mountain 
and there was eroded like very obvious rhododendron leaves and it was kind of like spreading yeah. off the top of the mountain they're just little black uh, and white images on in, on your paper but yeah I mean, that's fascinating that's a wonderful example so and that's also a, you know a way that sort of culture can can preserve right so in nashi culture um there's a sort of ritual specialist called a, a dongba and um they have this very interesting uh, orthography writing script that they use that's sort of similar to to chinese and that it's technically called an ideogram so it it sort of combines these pictographic elements but also these um uh sound elements um but it, it looks more pictorial to us and it's it's easy to interpret it as sort of these you know glyphs or sort of pictographs and there are lots of ones that include rhododendrons which is quite fun in descriptions of rituals that these ritual specialists would uh do in indicating specific species of rhododendrons specific uses of them for instance as spiritual cleansing and in fact actually uh i listeners can't hear this but i have right next to me ryan can see it um this wonderful uh map that was drawn by one of the uh dongba where in mapping, he's actually using some of the, you know, the Dongba words for like meadow here, but in this visual, in a map, which is, yeah, I guess that's hard to convey over, over audio, but it's this, this wonderful blending of somewhere between kind of language and rebus and, and picture. So in terms of interviews, what did, what did that look like? Did you have hired translators or how did you or do you know the languages yourself or are you fluent in... uh, I, I know a few words that are very specific to rhododendrons <laughs> but um no so I um I guess what my undergraduate training as a as a linguist gave me was a terrible inferiority complex about ever being able to speak a language well enough and you know, eth ethnobotanists are often after information that's in the heads of elders. So, you know, it's very specific information um, and um, it's in a very specific context. So, you know, often even being pretty fluent at, at a contact language like Chinese isn't going to get you to this, uh, this local language like Nashi or Yi that you want to talk about. But even knowing a bit of Nashi or Yi is is gonna be difficult because you're talking to people who you know, could have a very strong accent even in that language, could be hard of hearing, but you're also talking about these very specific specialist concepts. So we were really lucky in this case that we were able to do something that I always try to do, which is incorporate local investigators as, as part of the teams. So we had mostly young people in this project, usually sort of undergraduate or young graduate student age uh, from these communities. So Nashi and Yi, um, young men and young women who could uh, speak their mother tongue fairly fluently, also speak Chinese and English with me that we'd communicate in, in some Chinese and some English. They'd communicate with the interviewees in Nashi or Yi. And so this gave us definitely the language fluency, but also, you know, great advice about uh, refining our interview questions and our survey instruments. Um, wonderful advice on sort of where to go and um, how to sort of snowball from one uh, um, informant to the next. And wonderfully, this, this huge incentive for, you know, people to let us into their homes and, and talk to us. Because, you know, there, there's nothing that, I mean, 
I don't mean to speak for other people, but in my experience, there's, there's nothing that elders like to do more than talk to a young person from their own community about this, this information that they, that they know and they think is important and are excited that somebody else from the community thinks is important. And they're often, often interested in talking to me as well. And it's sort of intriguing that someone from outside the community thinks it's important. But uh, I think it's clearly meaningful to, um, to elders to be able to talk to young people from their own cultural groups. And these are people that I've, I've continued to work with in some cases as well. You, you mentioned that some of you still have sites in this mountain range for your ongoing work as well, or the or your sites more farther into the Himalayas? Yeah, well, we don't have the Gloria sites on Mount Yulong specifically. Um, I still have a um, really good relationship um, between Missouri Botanical Garden and the Kunming Institute of Botany, which maintains a field station on Mount Yulong and which I worked out of when I was working there. Um, and really wouldn't have been able to do my work without. We have collaborators at KIB who um, are doing very cool work with pollination biology, um, uh, with rhododendrons uh, and many other species on the mountain with the, their ecology and genetics. And um, like all the other places I work, it's an area I hope to be able to visit again sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah I feel the same way. Actually, I think some sure. of the contacts that I made and facilitated my visit to the herbarium there at the Kunming Institute of Botany was because of you. So Oh great. I'm <laughs> so glad to, to hear that. I have to tell you thank you for that. But when I went, the first week of my field season, so to speak, was spent in in Kunming and then I but mm-hmm. Zhongxin Ren. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the one who he's a pollination biologist, I believe, yeah. right? Specialist. And he was the one he shuttled me to and from my my hotel to the to KIB every single day so it was it was really great <laughs> to learn I'm so that. glad to hear that and that's just one of the great things about I mean I think being a biologist in general but you know particularly herbaria just have this culture of you know because there are only so many experts on certain plant groups they have this culture of welcoming in other researchers because those are the people who go through the collections and determine them right mm-hmm. uh so it's this wonderful thing that by, by using an herbarium, at, you suddenly get this ticket to this wonderful international network of uh, scholars enabling other scholars to do their work. I agree. Yeah, it was such a good experience for me to, to get to do that. The, more of a, I guess, sensitive subject, but I think we've alluded quite a few times towards this concept that you term in your paper, traditional ecological knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that we need to define it now, but we've also pretty straightforward talked about why it's important. So how do we preserve it? Is that our responsibility as scientists? And and then what, what can we do? the people who are not involved directly in, in like what you do help preserve and, and further the research for its preservation? Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting question, Ryan. And it is a it is a, a hard question. You know, I think I think one thing, of course, is sort of recognizing that there are other uh, knowledge systems that are, you know, systematic ways to think about the world, you know, is is just an important one. And I think that it's it's something that um uh, you know, sounds kind of simple or basic, but I think is, you know, it, it it's something I think scientists have a hard time communicating to the general public too. You know, you get a very good idea of how knowledge is produced, right? So you kind of understand like what a fact is in a very different way after X many years of a PhD, um, right? Because you understand how how the sort of evidentiary process works. 
Um, and you understand that there are these concepts that, that change over time as new evidence comes up. And, um, so I think scientists are already primed to say like, well, sure, there can be different, uh, different knowledge systems about the world. I would hope scientists are. I would hope that they can you know, help communicate that to um, the general public too. And I think in terms of preserving it, you know, it seems to me that having quality collaborations with local communities is, is really the way to do this. Basically, as scientists, we sort of we document and hypothesis test, right? And so that's not always an, an interest shared by a local community of farmers. You know, I, to be very honest with the you know, specific rhododendron phenology research I was doing, um, I don't think other than as a casual interest that a whole lot of the people I talked to shared that as a you know, real value or gained a lot from that process, right? But had I used prior informed consent, they also weren't weren't hurt by it. And, and I think in terms of longer projects, making sure that you have collaborations that advance goals on both sides of the collaboration are important and, and finding shared, shared goals sometimes. So I think supporting these communities is, is one thing. I think the documentation is important and sometimes communities can come back to that later. You know, there's um, certainly communities that uh, have come back to archival ethnographic information and found it really useful for reconstructing and, and rebuilding uh, traditional knowledge sets and traditional languages. But so I think that like that documentation and archive is important, but also sort of keeping it, keeping it living by, um, by supporting sort of knowledge in in praxis, right? Like actually sort of in situ. And of course, you know, that's something that has to be done by supporting local communities that themselves want to engage in it. So, you know, one thing that, uh, that one example that I like to give is the linguist colleague that I mentioned, um, David Harrison and his colleague, Greg Anderson, have worked with local speaker communities on what they call uh, talking dictionaries, which are these, you know, fairly simple uh, websites with words in this indigenous uh, small language. And then you can hear the word spoken. Sometimes there's an image accompanying it. Um, but it's something that for these communities, which are increasingly um, all online and able to access these, this can serve as a really valuable tool to um, share and keep their language living. But it's also a tool for um, us scientists to have this, this information recorded. And a lot of this information, of course, um, as I suggested before, packages knowledge about the environment. Um, I've, I've worked with them a little bit on incorporating ethnobotanical information into these talking dictionaries. Um, so that's just, you know, that, that's one example of sort of one, one facet where that can work. You know, I think more broadly, of course, supporting local and indigenous communities um, who are disadvantaged in other ways and have, you know, very important um, and urgent needs in terms of uh, health, economics, and food is very important and can, can help support traditional ecological knowledge as well as supporting all sorts of other things at the same time. And I guess I should say one, one more thing I should say would be with uh, political support too, where that's a relevant and safe thing to do. Um, you know, there are some times that uh, we can offer political support to these communities when they're uh, trying to find a, a better interaction with, for instance, national governments.
So if people are interested in this type of work, are you training students or are there opportunities to work with the research program for students? Uh, absolutely. Um, we would love to see students here. Um, uh, several, myself and several other people in the William L. Brown Center, several other curators, uh, supervise graduate students and sit on their committees um, at any of the uh, local universities here in St. Louis. I'd also say broadly, the Society for Economic Botany and the Society of Ethnobiology are uh, two professional societies that I'm part of that are very welcoming, filled with a real broad and interesting diversity of people. And um, I think accessible by essentially almost anyone from a, a natural science or social science academic background, many people with industry or community backgrounds, in fact, as well, and, and, and should be more broadly populated too, because a lot of us have projects that touch on, on people. Cool. Thanks. That yeah, that's that sounds like that'd be a great opportunity for any student. So I, I know we have you know a, ma a major part of this podcast is to to generate some excitement and possibly recruitment for people to do work with rhododendron specifically. But I can right. imagine yeah. rhododendron being a pipeline into you know some of the broader concepts that we've talked about here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think rhododendron. It's it's almost I, you could say this about many many species, right? But for rhododendron, it's almost unavoidable, right? It's a species of of such interest from an uh, aesthetic point of view across the world, the connections into uh, gardeners, garden history, but also the uh, the chemical ethnobotany of rhododendron, which I mentioned um, being um, such such an important historical and and something of contemporary relevance as well as well as sort of the cultural place of rhododendrons, um, you know, not not just in in the Himalayas, but in other places that they have natural populations too. I just had a, a weird question come up in my head when you said garden collections and things like that. But when you were having your interviews, did you find, did you have any conversations about these plants just being collected and grown around, like moved from like the hillside down into like a, a house garden or something? Because <laughs> there, you, you mentioned there's a lot of them that are, you know, they they're, can't be used for anything, but you know, they are pretty. So that that's the one of the reasons why rhododendron is so popular in, in the western hemisphere at least it's collected for beauty and hybridization and, and sold that way so yeah yeah well one of the wonderful things about um uh the yulong area that i guess especially in 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 nashi culture but also you know throughout the the lijong area is this courtyard garden garden culture there's a, a really um ancient and, and famous it's been written about sort of aesthetic of these rich courtyard gardens in which a lot of the plants that um, people plant in these courtyard gardens are uh, transplanted from the mountain as well as being bought at markets or given as gifts. And so there are lots of rhododendrons in there, basically, um, and uh, rhododendrons that have been transplanted down there and uh, even, you know, twisted pieces of rhododendron wood as sort of gar garden art. So yeah, there is a lot of um, uh, rhododendron garden culture. And there's also recognition of rhododendrons as something that brings botanists from outside the country to the area as well. One, one, one person reported that as one of the uses of rhododendrons. Said, well, it seems to bring a lot of foreign <laughs> botanists to the area <laughs> because there's definitely, you know, there is cultural memory in these areas and a lot of the people who were actually doing the plant collections for um, George Forrest and Joseph Rock, when they were collecting in the area, they, they were 
Dashi and Yi and, and other minority collectors. And so um, over multiple generations, they um, uh, gained a lot of expertise in working as part of these international teams with focus on all sorts of plants, but a whole lot of rhododendrons in particular. Yeah, there's there's a, a rich history of stories to be told, I'm sure, from someone like George Forrest's, you know, mountain adventures and, and the people that none of his stuff would have been been able to be done without without the help of Nashi and Yi people on the ground, for sure. Absolutely. And if anyone, I mean, if for anyone with sort of a history of, of science interest, I really recommend the book, The Paper Road um, by Eric Mugler, which really gets into that. As, you know, as one aspect of it gets into that, you know, interaction point between this sort of uh, botanist from the British Isles um, and the sort of all this paper he brought with him to preserve plants in, you know, particularly rhododendrons, and um, and then the paper on which the um, the Nashi Dongba ritual specialists were inscribing this this um, these Nashi glyphs and and the particular identities of some of the uh, plant collectors who were working for George Forrest. So um, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really beautiful book. Well, I know I'm definitely gonna pick it up now. That sounds awesome. So you're gonna transition towards like our wrap up questions, sure. I think. So, you know, you're someone with international collaborative expertise, I would say at this point in your career. So like, <laughs> what do you think are some of the major opportunities for international collaboration within rhododendron science? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I mean, I think that of course, my experience was really was working in, in China and with rhododendrons in particular, um, but then also in other, other countries in the Eastern Himalaya. And I think that these international networks based around these strong shared interests can really work. So I, I haven't been part of an international network based specifically around rhododendrons per se in my work, but I have been part of this Gloria network. And what I've seen there is just this incredible amount of what seems like very easy international collaboration. There's just a strong sense of shared goals. We understand why we're doing and uh, what we're doing and why it's important and we want to make it happen. And um, that's something that can overcome the natural barriers, of course, to international collaboration, which are, you know, distance and cost and um, miscommunications because of language. And of course, the sort of ever present for everyone, you know, hurdles thrown up by uh, various levels of kind of bureaucracy and, and regulation and whatnot that you need, just need to navigate through, they need to be navigated through. And so I think the opportunities are, are ones of kind of parity and, and realizing that all members of international collaboration have to kind of be equally engaged for something to really, to really work and take off. Yeah, I think I've kind of found that to be the case too in my work. I mean, Rick um, has my advisor is Richard Ree at the at the Field Museum for those who, who are listening, but he has a pretty rich history too of of doing work not on rhododendron, but working with with folks from from Yunnan province in particular. So you know, a lot of my work would not have been conceivable without collaborators there who are a lot of aligned interest too, like figuring out, you know, which rhododendron species are related to each other and, and things like that. And there's, you know, there's, there's a huge body of, of research that's coming out of 
like the Kunming Institute of Botany and um, Sichuan University. And you know, they have these really amazing labs where people are doing really cool work on rhododendrons. So there, there are opportunities. I think, like you said, the, the interests just kind of have to overlap. And, yeah. Uh, and I think once, once they, once they do, there's this like just vital translation um, that happens that, you know, it's easy to say, oh, here's why, here's why we're not getting this specific permission we need to get or just apply for the visa this way or, you know, try this methodological uh, approach or, you know, here's a chunk of R code or use this primer or something, right? Um, that, uh, that allow sort of research at a whole, a whole different level and um, a whole lot less reduplicated and wasted energy too. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. So what are the next steps for you? Like, is there anything in rhododendron research right now that you're really excited about or, or things kind of in, in the pipeline? Well, one of the things that's happened sort of recently, and it's not, I can't claim it for me, it's not mine, but um, I'm very excited about the work of Dr. Shweta Basnet, who um, uh, has done some, some parts of her work are fairly similar and comparable to the elevational transects I ran in Yunnan, only she was doing it in Sikkim um, on a almost entirely different assemblage of rhododendron species. There's one shared species, but similar elevations, similar number of species, similar uh, phenological distribution. And she found some very similar patterns too. And it was something that when I first started my work, I, I thought I'm gonna do this on five or six different mountains and get really good comparability. And then I realized like, oh no, I'd be lucky to do it on one mountain. Um, and, um, and so I was really excited to, to see her results and to see that these are sorts of patterns that work more broadly across the Himalaya. So uh, I'm, I'm also just really interested to see uh, where, where her research goes next. Yeah, I, I, and I, yeah, I concur 100%. I'm really excited. And we will be having her on the podcast, I believe. Um, Great sometime next year, I think in 2022, because um, I think they're in the field doing cool rhododendron work right now. So and I guess as a final kind of fun question, like what is, what's your favorite experience that you've had while <laughs> working on rhododendrons? Um, taking shelter in a forest of rhododendron trailianum in a thunder hail storm on that high pass behind the south summit of Mount Yulong. <laughs> There's something very comforting about that nice um, uh, twisted trunk and um, and reddish bark of a big rhododendron when you're in a thunder hailstorm. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, you just took me straight back there because we had a similar experience, but we were kind of farther up on the mountain, so I had mm -hmm. to hide in bushes of laponica, which are not which oh, are, no. <laughs> <laughs> are much less protective than the trailianum for sure. Yeah, you um, really got to get down flat to really get shelter. Yeah, we just, that was crazy. But I usually cite that as like maybe not my favorite experience, but definitely gives for the best story um, for sure. Most memorable. <laughs> Well, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for giving us your time. I don't know if you have any final last words for listeners before we sign off. Um, just thank you. It's just, it, it's such a pleasure to get to, to talk again. And I really appreciate your, you know, being so interested and in letting me talk not just about rhododendrons, but also about uh, ethnobotany and traditional knowledge more generally. Um, it's, it's been a lot of fun. 
course, yeah, I think that's a lot of people are going to be interested in, in the things that you talked about specifically. So, but yeah, thanks again, Robbie. And um, thanks everybody for tuning in today. Um, and we'll see you next time on For the Love of Rhododendron. Bye-bye. Curious to learn more about the topics discussed in this episode? Visit our website at www.rhododendron.org. Here, you'll find tons of rhododendron resources, including tutorials, blogs, events, databases, and more. Click on the podcast link on the homepage to find more episodes, suggest a topic for a future episode, and get in-depth information about the people, places, and plants featured here. Until next time, keep carrying that torch for rhododendron, and don't forget to talk endlessly about this podcast to all your friends and family.